Hello and welcome to another edition of the International Intrigue Audio Newsletter. I am back, but I come bearing a huge thank you to Helen for taking up the mantle for last week's audio newsletter. This week we're doing a special edition on Afghanistan. Now normally we don't cover the big stories because we figure you can find them elsewhere. But this is one of those times where the issue is just too big to ignore. We've tried to bring you a couple of angles that you may not have read elsewhere. So part one focuses on the story of Afghanistan and how the media is covering the unfolding situation. And then secondly, we take a look at the tech angle, how Silicon Valley is coping with the Taliban on its platforms. It's a fascinating edition, and we hope you enjoy it. Without further ado, on to part one. In this week's newsletter, we started off with a little roundup of some interesting stories about the Afghanistan situation that you may not be aware of. For 40 years, Afghanistan has been the laboratory in which superpowers conduct their foreign policy experiments, and we linked to a timeline of the Soviet and US occupations of Afghanistan. The former chairman of the US Joint Chiefs of Staff, Admiral Mike Mullen, has admitted he got Afghanistan policy wrong and he reflects on why. In that same vein, a former Pakistani ambassador to the US thinks his country will regret its decades-long support for the Taliban. Commentators have been frothing about how China stands to benefit from the US withdrawal, but we're skeptical that China is actually that thrilled. Putin is likely equally worried. Russia now has a power vacuum in its neighborhood, with significant potential for instability in the Stan countries. As for the future of Afghanistan itself, it's sadly no surprise that the Taliban's resurgence will affect women the most. And Afghanistan's already weak economy now has to deal with a run on the banks and the threat of inflation. Is it crypto's time to shine? And lastly, an Australian videographer has decided to stay in Afghanistan. Check out Jordan Bryan's Instagram videos from the past week. And you can catch all the links to those stories if you go to our newsletter in the show notes. Part 1. The Story of Afghanistan Why has Afghanistan hit such a chord with us all? There's something different about the current situation in Afghanistan. Rarely do geopolitical events attract such sustained coverage for weeks at a time. It's tempting to say that the Afghanistan situation is much more serious than other geopolitical stories. But is it really? And if so, why? Well, we used high science to find out. And here we have an image of two polls that I ran on my social media this week on Twitter and LinkedIn. The question was, the Afghanistan story remains dominant in almost all Western news cycles. What is it about this story that has created so much interest and longevity in the mainstream media compared to other big geopolitical stories? The final results were 68 votes. The four reasons we gave were the end of the 20-year war is the reason why this story has so much interest, and 29.3% of respondents thought that. The visa evacuation angle were 25.15% of you thought that's the reason why the story had uh, so much longevity. The confronting images of the planes at the airport and, and people being shot, 
while 23.3% of youth said that was responsible for the story's importance. And lastly, the fear of the Taliban, 22.25% of you said that was the reason why. That was conclusively inconclusive, uh, and we personally find that the end of the 20-year US-led war as the most compelling of those four answers to the question of why the story has created so much interest and longevity. Now, obviously, there's no single reason. We designed those polls just to help us get our thinking hats on, nothing more. In fact, we think that the question actually obscures a far more important truth. The mainstream media news cycle is a bad proxy for how much people care. And after the last five years or so, do we really need to say more? So to answer the question we posed, we developed a simple hypothesis. As horrific as the Afghanistan situation no doubt is, one of the main differences between it and other horrific geopolitical stories is the elongated news cycle. And the news cycle is only elongated because everyone was completely unprepared for the Taliban's rapid takeover and is playing catch up. Now, don't forget, news organizations put their pants on one leg at a time like the rest of us. They need time to get reporters on the ground, line up sources, and take calls from advertisers and lobbyists telling them what and what not to say. That's not to say they should have been unprepared. Everyone knew that the Taliban would retake Afghanistan sooner or later, but governments, media, and even civilians seem to have been awfully complacent for reasons that elude us. The geopolitical news cycle. Introducing the international intrigue model of a news cycle about a major geopolitical event, trademarked. And yeah, we're working on a snappier name. Stage one, the breaking news. The initial stage is the pure reporting of facts so the audience becomes aware of a new situation. The US withdrawal from Afghanistan has flitted in and out of the news since President Biden announced it on April 14. But the breaking news that kicked off the current news cycle around August 10 was the Taliban's unexpected and rapid recapture of most of Afghanistan. Stage two, the context. As the basic facts become common knowledge, the structure of the story gets set. The media starts to focus on providing context. Subject matter experts appear on current affairs shows and reporters interview people for first-hand accounts. The common knowledge about the situation in Afghanistan is now, the withdrawal of US troops has been disastrous. Stage three, the political blame game. Now less cynical folks might call this the analysis stage, and the most cynical folks might call it the outsourcing of critical thinking stage. Either way, at this stage, the political machinery in most countries tries to co-opt the narrative for their own purposes. Somewhere between stages two and three, politicians and corporations and talking heads try to own the story by trialing soundbites in the media. Stage four, the story fades away or becomes a political meme. Now, political memes are an easily recognisable shorthand for a broader political attack. For example, contrast how the coup in Myanmar in early February was front page news for about a week, but has now all but disappeared from the mainstream media. Contrast that with how Trump-era memes about Russian hacking or Obama-era memes about Benghazi, both stories that devolved into multi-year long political slogans with almost no connection to the original event i.e. the stories became political memes. 
And here we've got the front page of the New York Times today with both stage one breaking news and stage two adding context uh, stories on, on the front page there. We are entering stage three, AKA the blame game. Based on this actually scientific analysis of how the media is covering the Afghanistan situation, and unfortunately that link is paywalled, there seems to be at least three main stage three narratives emerging. The first one, the buck stops with Biden. Domestic critics of the withdrawal are lumping together the decision to withdraw US troops with the execution of that withdrawal. Those pushing this narrative would like the reader to combine the fact that the withdrawal was botched and that the military intelligence community, State Department and politicians all share the blame with the decision to withdraw US forces from Afghanistan, which was an entirely political decision. In fact, international critics of the withdrawal have condemned Biden as well, pushing the angle that the decision might have been different if it was left to them, and the execution would certainly have been different. Narrative two, the decision was correct and the chaos was inevitable. Now, conversely, Biden and his supporters are trying to separate the decision and its execution by saying that no matter when US forces withdrew, it would inevitably have been messy. By focusing on the decision to end an unpopular war, President Biden hopes you'll focus on the clarity of his decision and diffuse blame for the horrible chaos across the various institutions and countries that have their fingers in the 20-year Afghanistan war pie. The third narrative is the military versus civilian leadership. We're starting to see a rush of articles about either how military commanders unanimously recommended extending the war despite politicians being skeptical, which is meant to absolve politicians of blame for misguided Afghanistan policy, and how civilian leadership kept putting political concerns above the operational recommendations of the military. And that kind of story is meant to absolve military leaders of blame for misguided Afghanistan policy. The reality is that both statements can be and probably are true. The military and the civilian leadership both bear responsibility. But as we enter stage three and four of the news cycle, you will be encouraged by those stories to forget that fact and to pick a side. So will Afghanistan become a political meme? The remaining unknown is whether Afghanistan will fade from the mainstream media or become a political meme. Now here are two prominent front page stories from two major news outlets in the last 36 hours. Headline one, Joe Biden's judgment on so many issues for so many decades has been so wrong. Headline two, Trump's own security advisor criticized him for Taliban surrender. So, will stories like this stick around? Which one will dominate? Or will they both survive, existing in separate walled gardens, giving succor to those who describe themselves as left or right? Now, you might be asking yourself, so what? Well, we consume foreign affairs news because we want to better understand how the world works, whether it's for our day jobs or just for good citizenship. And yet, the further we get from the actual events of the last two weeks, the more these stories will have nothing to do with giving you more facts about what's going on in Afghanistan and everything to do with telling you how to think about what's going on in Afghanistan. And the more these stories will be about your identity. You'll start seeing more stories that make you feel like you and your tribe were right about Afghanistan all along, and the other guys were hopelessly wrong. Look, 
Maybe we're the ones who are wrong. One of the very few good things about being in the middle of this media cycle is that we can test our hypothesis in real time. So help us do that. Keep our hypothesis in mind over the next few weeks as you consume stories about Afghanistan. If we're wrong, then no harm done, except maybe to our subscriber numbers. But if we're right, if our hypothesis is correct, you'll have been able to spot the stories that try to tell you how to think before they even get a chance to. And that's a key step to better understanding the world. Part two, to ban or not to ban the Taliban. Unscrambling the egg. This week, big tech execs in Silicon Valley have been wringing their hands over whether to make their platforms accessible to the Taliban. They're probably longing for simpler times when content moderators stayed up all night debating whether Bobby calling Jimmy a turd was online bullying or not. While tech platforms that host user-generated content, particularly Facebook or YouTube, are no strangers to policing terrorism or violent extremism materials, moderating the Taliban presents a unique conundrum. On the one hand, the Taliban have wrested control of the country from the Afghan government and are running the show. Should they also have access to official Afghan government social media accounts, which they might use to broadcast public services, e.g. via WhatsApp? I mean, Twitter okayed the Taliban, as long as they quote-unquote follow the rules, arguably making Jack Dorsey as powerful as the UN. Or perhaps Beardgame just respects Beardgame. And for this one, you've got to check out the meme in our newsletter. On the other hand, the Taliban are still the Taliban. Recognising them would legitimise the Taliban on the international stage, which is something the West would never do. Cough, cough. Please ignore the fact that they used to have an official office in New York City. The Taliban is also now designated as a terrorist organisation by social media platforms like Facebook and TikTok, and their content has previously violated the platform's hate speech policies. Add to all that this scary possibility. There's limited time before another threat comes into play. Vast digital data stores left behind by the US that will expose Afghans' ties to American operations on a massive scale, once in Taliban hands. That's from Politico on the 23rd of August. Of course, this whole debate is just red meat in the foaming mouths of the rabid dogs that are commentators who note the hypocrisy of Trump remaining banned while a designated terrorist group are not. One of us argued earlier this year that by banning Trump then, social media platforms were setting up a trap for their future selves, though not even he imagined it would be a Taliban-shaped trap. Thank heavens someone has a sense of humour about it all. And in our newsletter, you'll see a screenshot of a fake Twitter account called Don Hamid Trumpistan, uh, which has been touted as Trump trying to sneak back in on Twitter by disguising himself as a Taliban spokesperson. Put simply, tech platforms can't agree on how to deal with the Taliban. Their industry coalition group, the Global Internet Forum to Counter Terrorism, which is kind of like Captain Planet for preventing terrorists from exploiting tech platforms, but sounds a red bodysuit and cool name. Anyway, this body has been unable to provide clarity on the issue. Instead, the body passed the buck and farmed out responsibility for making a decision to the individual platforms. To be fair, the major tech platforms seem to be doing their best. 
working under intense time pressure with stakes that couldn't be higher. What even are the Taliban now? The crux of the whole issue is what the Taliban are in August 2021. Are they an adversarial government or a terrorist organisation with territory? It looks as though the international community is leaning towards the former description, however begrudgingly. And it must be said that compared to 20 years ago, the group appears more politically deft and perhaps keen on actually governing. So if the Taliban are a government, then they should be able to use tech platforms to broadcast their governing agenda, right? If the Taliban all of a sudden can't use WhatsApp, you're just isolating Afghans, making it harder for them to communicate in an already panicky situation. I know it sounds improbable that these could actually help, but in this really bizarre, fast-moving situation, civilians need all the resources they can get, and this is one of them. That's a quote from Ashley Jackson, who's the former Red Cross aid worker in Afghanistan. But wait, no matter how the international community views the Taliban, the governing agenda is still, to every sane person, repressive, brutal and misogynistic. And we're back to square one. Clearly there are no easy answers here. Perhaps a stable Taliban capable of holding Afghanistan together might really be the lesser of two evils. Then again, that's disturbingly easy to type from the comfort of our air-conditioned, well-supplied, free of violent militant officers. So there you have it. That's another week in the can. This week was a pretty special edition, and we hope you enjoyed it. As always, please get in touch with us by replying directly to the email that you can find in the show notes or reaching out to us on Twitter at INTintry. That's at intintry. Until next week. Mm-hmm.